Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Welcome to week three of our series called Holy. We began two weeks ago by learning that the word holy means unique and set apart. We also learned that it isn't just God who in the scriptures is called holy, uh, that the Bible actually calls people, places, things, uh, and time holy. And that God's holy presence is the, is the function of making things holy. And so what we took from that is that the holiness of God is this invitation for us to participate in his own holiness. And so what we're doing throughout this series is kind of exploring what that looks like and what that means and tracing that idea through the biblical narrative. And what we learned last week is that at the beginning of the biblical narrative, the story starts with an understanding that holiness, that the holiness of God is dangerous and incompatible with any impurities. And so we explored the the weight of living under a system that declared you unclean if you touched something impure, that impurity infected you and kept you from being able to worship in God's presence at the temple because you had to become pure through these purity rituals. And so the driving assumption under this system was that our impurities put God's holiness at risk, that your impurity, my impurities, could be transferred over to God. And this was actually the understanding uh, for a really long time, that God's people lived under this weight of wondering if they were pure enough um, to enter into God's presence and having to participate in all these um, rituals in order to become pure just so that they could worship. Now, I told you last week that there's two Old Testament prophets who have visions that change everything. And today we're going to explore those visions. The first one is from Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Now let's unpack this story a little bit uh, to try to get a sense of what's going on. Now Isaiah is a prophet in the nation of Israel. And while it may sound cool to be a prophet, maybe even like a little uh, like romantic, oh, a prophet, um, it's actually kind of difficult business. Uh, A prophet carries a timely word from God 
for the people of God. And much of the time in the Old Testament, the prophets were calling Israel to repent for wrongs that they have done. In other words, the prophet was pointing out sin in their lives and the ways in which they were not living in accordance with the will of God. And in fact, the role of the prophet was to speak against the evils that had arisen in their midst. And this meant that being a prophet was not cool or romantic. It was difficult business. And it meant that prophets were not very popular at all. In fact, they were often hated. But in this passage, uh, Isaiah has a prophetic vision that is going to change everything, even though people may not understand it right away. Now, prophetic vision is a a picture in your mind's eye where God uncovers reality. It's a vision of what is most real about the world. Even though uh, these visions from Old Testament prophets are often filled with crazy images, the layer of meaning has everything to do with their own lives and our own lives. In other words, the, the function or the role of a prophetic vision is not, to just tell, is not to tell the future as much as it is to provide a timely word from God for the people of God. And so in this vision, the prophet Isaiah is in the temple and he sees these creatures called seraphs or seraphim uh, who are praising God and they're declaring God's holiness. Verse 3, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is right here in the midst of God's holy presence, which he understands to be dangerous. He hasn't gone through any purity rituals. He knows that he isn't supposed to be there. And he is terrified. In fact, he even cries out, admitting to God and to the seraphims all around him. He says, woe is me. For I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I am living among a people of unclean lips. Then a seraph takes a piece of coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it. Now, if we've been paying attention to the whole system of purity laws, we should know that this is a big deal. See, the coal coming from the altar of God represents the holiness of God. This is a holy object. And and Isaiah's impurities uh, should have transferred to this holy object. I mean, here Isaiah is impure, yet he's in the midst of God's holy presence. And now this rogue seraph is touching holy objects to this impure person, putting the holiness of God at risk. And so we, first of all, would expect a couple things to happen, right? First, we would expect that Isaiah would be kicked out of the temple. Uh, You shouldn't be in here. You haven't gone through all the property, proper rituals. Now, second, we ought to understand maybe this seraph, uh, this uh, messenger of God, is in fact a little bit rogue, right? That he, he should be fired and replaced by one who is more responsible. And then maybe a side story movie made about a seraph called The Rogue One. Well, curiously, though, this is not what happens. Uh, the seraph touches Isaiah with a coal from the altar. So it represents God's holiness. But then he says to Isaiah, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Wait, what? I mean, this is absolutely remarkable. The holy object should have become impure by touching Isaiah, but instead it transfers its purity to Isaiah. 
And this is a brand new idea. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He is transformed by it, and he is cleansed. And this is a total reversal of the way that uh, we've understood holiness to this point. Perhaps God doesn't need to be protected from our impurities. Perhaps our impurity is endangered by God's holiness. And so maybe it isn't our impurity that is the infectious agent. Perhaps it's God's holiness that is, in fact, infectious. So that's the first vision. It changes everything. The implications of this are gigantic. But then, about a hundred years later, the prophet Ezekiel receives an, a prophetic vision, and totally different in its, uh, in its imagery, but very similar in what it means. Here's what it says. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 9. And then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south to the altar. And then he brought me out uh, by the way of the north gate, he led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And the water was coming out of the south side and flowing toward the east. Now going on eastward with a cord in his hand, a man measured 1,000 cubits. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured 1,000. He led me through the water, and it was up to the waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross. For the water had risen, and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Mortal, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I came back, I saw that on the bank of the river were a great many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah, where it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant waters, and the water will become fresh. For wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish once these waters reach there. It will become fresh, and everything will live where this river goes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> now, in this incredible vision, the prophet Ezekiel is brought to the temple of God and in order to see that water is flowing out of the temple toward the east. And at first, the water is just a small stream, and then it turns into a river, and eventually the water from the temple is, is too far across and too deep that it would be impossible to even cross it. And this water from the temple brings life to all that touches it. Trees grow along its shores. Fish and wildlife teem in its waters and around its waters. And eventually the river flows into the Dead Sea, bringing it to life. And this visual picture is stunning. Flowing from the temple of God is a river that brings life to all that it touches, even that which used to be dead. And this is significant because it, because it used to be that you had to go to the temple and be pure in order to enter into God's presence and worship. But in this vision, the life-giving presence of God, represented by the river, now flows out of the temple and into creation. Do you see what's happened here? Up to this point, it was understood that you had to become pure and then go into the temple. But in this vision... The holy, 
life-giving love of God is flowing out of the temple into the world. Man, I get so uh, motivated, excited, inspired by these prophetic visions, for they capture my imagination, and I hope they capture yours as well. I mean, what's happening here, again, is a total reversal of how holiness has been understood up to this point. Holiness doesn't flow out of the temple. You have to go to the temple. Uh, So this takes the traditional understanding of how we participate in God's holiness and flips it on its head. But there's more. You see, Ezekiel is careful to note that the river is flowing toward the east. He goes to the north side of the temple and the water's flowing to the east. He goes to the south side of the temple, the water's, more water's flowing toward the east. Why would he be so careful to tell us the direction the water is flowing? Because in biblical typology, eastward movement is movement away from God. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve have sinned, they're kicked out of the garden to the east. And then the cherubim that are guarding the the Garden of Eden uh, are placed on the east. After Cain kills Abel, he moves away to the east. That many scholars agree that in Genesis and in the Bible in general, movement to the east is a literary representation of movement away from God. And so metaphorically, you have all of these people living in the East who have moved away from God, moved away from his ways, have refused his will. And then in Ezekiel's vision, the river flows from the temple of God toward the East in order to chase them down and bring life and purity. Oh, Lord, may we let the river of your holiness catch up to us. The river flowing from the temple is a picture of the holiness of God chasing sinners in order to purify them and bring life. Thanks be to God. And so what these two prophetic visions do is they work together to capture our imaginations for a new relationship between God's holiness and humanity to establish a new way in which we interact and participate in the holiness of God. They show, us, they show us a new way of relating with God, and they give us such a wonderful picture of God's holiness reaching out in order to purify us, of God taking the initiative. But here's the thing. The prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel, in their lifetimes, probably never fully knew what these visions meant. I can hardly imagine what it must have been like to receive a vision like Isaiah's and then live in the daily realities of purity laws uh, and rituals. Or I can hardly imagine what it must have been like for Ezekiel to see the river of God's holiness going out from the temple but live with the daily reality of having to become ritually and morally pure in order to go into the temple. That there was at least for the time being in their lifetimes, this gap between the reality that God had shown them through this vision and sort of the everyday monotony of their lives. These two prophets never fully realized what these visions meant. 
But the good news is, is the biblical story doesn't end there. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to take these visions and allow them to anchor our understanding of what holiness means for us now as we continue to move through the biblical narrative. But for today, may we be so encouraged and inspired and our imaginations sparked by these visions of God's holiness coming to us with purifying work. It isn't that God's holiness is at risk from our impurities, but rather these visions show us that God takes the initiative to bring His holiness to us. And so may the river of God's holiness catch up to us.